0: Internet privacy is becoming more and more important these days, and using a VPN in general is the best way to ensure you've got it. An ExpressVPN has everything you'd ever want and need in a VPN, and more. I've tried other VPNs, but once I started using Express months ago, I've never looked back. ExpressVPN works on nearly every computer, tablet, and mobile device, and contains a huge network of servers, over 3,000 spanning 94 countries, with great speeds. You can use it to unblock popular online services like Netflix and Facebook, and they value your privacy more than anything. There are no activity or connection logs, and they use PWC audited servers to confirm compliance with their privacy policy. They are just fantastic, and I could not be more happy to be partnered with them. So if you are interested in trying it out, you can go to expressvpn.com slash clancypasta, or click the link in the description, for 3 months free when you order a 12 month subscription. Using my link you get an awesome deal, and it helps me out a ton as well. Alright, so without further ado, here's the episode. Hello everybody, I hope you're having a good night, and welcome to another episode of Clancy Pasta. The shorter story of the night is called You Can Hear the Storms of Jupiter Beneath the Pacific Ocean by WhateverMan52, and the longer story is called Widowmakers by The Vesper's Bell. And uh, I wanted to give a quick shout out and congrats to the author on the release of his new ebook. So, uh, if you enjoy this story and want to check it out, a link to that will be in the description. I hope you all enjoy tonight's tales and uh, let me know what you think in the comments below. Make sure to give this video a like. And without further ado, enjoy the first story Widowmakers, written by the Vespers Bell. I work as a caretaker at a private conservatory. Actually, secret might be a better word to describe it, since you'll never find any public information on it. It doesn't even have an official name, though my boss likes to call it the Silken Solarium, or the Widowmaker when he wants to make a pun. Visits are by invitation only, and I haven't the slightest idea if these guests are actually being charged some exorbitant fee to help maintain the place or if my employer simply enjoys showing off his collection of exotic specimens now and then. The conservatory itself is a gothic masterpiece of tinted glass, wrought iron, and dark purple bricks with an equally ornate, ivy-covered brick wall around the perimeter. We're a good way off the closest highway and surrounded by wood, so not many people come here by accident. Some do, of course, but I'm getting ahead of myself. As unsettling as the place is to look at from the outside, it's even more disturbing inside. There are some tropical plants placed around the place for landscaping. Rare and expensive, but ordinary enough. But the centerpiece of the conservatory are the spiders. Thousands and thousands and thousands of small black spiders with jewel-encrusted abdomens. Literally, they have actual crystals that grow in fractal patterns on their back segments of every possible color and hue that you can imagine. When my boss makes a speech to his guests about the spiders, he calls them Latrodectus Callisti, or Fairest Widows. He brags that our conservatory is their last refuge, and they aren't to be found anywhere else in the world. Exactly where they're from originally and how he acquired them varies from telling to telling, but he is at the very least telling the truth about their rarity. As far as I've been able to determine, they're not even an officially recognized species. The Widows aren't just notable for their beauty, however. They're an extremely social species, nearly as social as an anthill or beehive. Stretching across the conservatory, suspended about 12 feet in the air, is a massive silk colony. There's a large central nest dangling from the ceiling, about a dozen smaller nests scattered across the room, and an intricate network of masterfully spun spider webs linking them all together. There are always spiders running along it, performing maintenance or transporting food. There are also guard spiders, who just hang down on a single silk thread to keep watch and send vibrations back along it to communicate to the rest of the colony. Those are my boss's favorite, since they're the easiest to get a good look at. Or rather, perhaps I should say they're his favorite living spiders. The dead ones, however, he prizes above any conventional jewels. They're tens of thousands of times scarcer than diamonds, and he controls their only hatchery. The dead spiders always get thrown from the nest, which I used to find unusual, since I'd thought species of the Black Widow genus were cannibals. In fact, the more I thought of it, the more it bugged me, since the spiders obviously don't have the cognitive capacity to have any sort of taboo against cannibalism, which means they have to be acting on instinct. What evolutionary reason could they have for not eating their own dead? Regardless of why they do it, Whenever I see a body, I am to gently sweep it up and turn it in to our entomologist. Depending on their quality, he'll either incinerate them, use them for research, put them on display, sell them for no less than $25,000 a carat, or, in the case of the most perfect specimens, give to our boss. Most crucially, though, I am never, ever to step on one. That was made abundantly clear to me from the first day. Less clear, though, were the consequences for doing so, since I've never actually done it. The spiders have a habit of tossing the dead where they're clearly visible, a visibility which is aided by their brightly colored, shiny rear ends. This made the whole not-eating-their-dead thing even weirder to me, since it seems like they would attract predators. When I first asked my boss what would happen if I did step on a spider, my only answer was that I'd be finished. I used to think that meant I'd be fired. One of the more dangerous parts of my job is when I have to harvest their webs, since our conservatory also doubles as a silk farm. It's nowhere near as valuable as the spiders themselves, but my boss takes great pride in our facility being the only source of naturally farmed spider silk in the world. On one occasion, when I think he was partially drunk, He went on an odd tirade about how those goats that have been genetically modified to produce spider silk proteins in their milk were abominations. Collecting the silk is pretty much like collecting honey. I even wear a modified beekeeper suit and use a smoke spray to incapacitate them. The only difference is I'm standing on a 10-foot ladder, and I have to be very selective about how much web I take and from where. The spiders don't mind too much if I take a small amount from a non-crucial section of the colony, but if they decide I'm threatening the integrity of the colony itself, they'll swarm, and with enough bites, their venom will cause fatal paralysis. My suit offers a little protection, but it's not airtight. The only real way to keep myself safe is to be mindful of what I'm doing and how the spiders are reacting to it. That's why I usually like to feed them first so that they're distracted. A couple of times a week I release a gallon of live ladybugs into the enclosure. They're fairly accessible, since organic farmers use them for pest control. My boss likes them since he doesn't consider them icky enough to throw off the conservatory's aesthetic. My job isn't without its risks, but those can be mitigated easily enough with some planning and vigilance, and I'm well compensated for my trouble. The only part of my job that I truly hate... That makes me think about resigning every time it happens is what happens when we get an uninvited guest. It was winter, January, I think, the first time. It was already dark out, but no later than 6 p.m. The weather outside was nasty, and I was contemplating whether or not to risk driving home or stay overnight when I had an urgent, desperate banging at the front door. I immediately raced to the front foyer and there on the other side of the glass was a blonde woman in a red coat and dark gray scarf, already half buried in the snow. Tapping my security card to the reader, I pushed open the door just enough to let her in before letting it close and automatically lock. "'Come in, come in, come in,' I ushered quickly. "'What in God's name are you doing out on foot on a night like this?' "'Oh, thank you, thank you,' she gasped as she shook the snow off herself. My car skidded off the fucking road and crashed into a ditch. I can't get it out. That's still no excuse to be wandering around in this weather. You should have stayed with your vehicle, I chastised. At least then you would have been warm. Well, I couldn't call anyone because I must have forgotten my phone since it's not in my purse, and my tank was nearly empty, so I didn't think my vehicle would be able to keep me warm all night, she explained. That old road is deserted at the best of times, and... I figured the odds of someone else coming along before I froze to death were worse than me reaching a farmhouse or something. She took off her gloves and began blowing air into her hands, then rapidly rubbing them together to warm them up. I diligently noted the wedding ring on her left hand, as I had been instructed to. I'm terribly sorry to have intruded like this, but may I use your phone, please? She asked me. "'I can make a call for you, but I can't let you use our phones directly,' I said, apologetically. "'What?' she asked, unable to contain the tinge of annoyance with me despite being at my mercy. "'We're a conservatory for a critically endangered species of spider, so we have rather stringent security procedures,' I explained.
1: "'Only
0: staff are allowed to use the phone lines.' I can call a tow truck and any friends or family if you have a number for me. The woman sighed in resignation and took out a pen and scrap of paper from her pocket and jotted down a number. That's my husband's cell, Alex Gifford. Tell him my car's stuck somewhere on Mordred Drive and I'm safe here for now, she said as she handed me the note. I'm Carrie, by the way. Halden, I nodded. You can hang your coat up and get yourself warm. I'll make the phone calls and get you some coffee. Cream and sugar, please. Thank you. She smiled gratefully, which made my stomach royal since I knew damn well I wasn't going to call her husband. I left her there and headed for the administrative office, making sure to leave the door to the main exhibit open for her. After a couple of calls, albeit different calls than the ones I said I was going to make, I did head to the break room to make coffee, and then went to rejoin Mrs. Gifford with a steaming cup in each hand. As expected, she had wandered into the exhibit hall. She was staring up in wonder at the intricate webwork, the delicate silken threads glistening like iridescent glass and gently swaying from the movement of its bedazzled architects, scurrying to and fro along its narrow filaments. What are they? She asked, bewildered keeping her head pointed up towards the colony as she walked along the cobblestone path, paying no attention to where her feet struck the ground. "'There are rare species of black widows,' I said, my eyes fixated on her feet, waiting for the inevitable. She approached one of the guard spiders, dangling just above her like a Christmas tree ornament, slowly spinning around to give her a complete view of itself. "'And these crystals? They're a part of their bodies?' she asked, studying it intently, likely unaware that it was studying her as well. They are. They make them with the minerals from their diet, sort of like how oysters make pearls, I humored her. Spider-born organic gemstones are highly sought after, as you can imagine, which is why they're endangered. As far as I know, they're actually extinct in the wild. I've never even heard of such a thing, Carrie remarked and I never thought that spiders could be beautiful. The spider let out some more thread to get a little closer to her, and she began reaching out her hand to touch it. I wouldn't do that, ma'am, I advised, despite knowing it wouldn't ultimately make a difference. These are still widows, and they are venomous. Come join me over here and we can admire them from a safe distance while we wait for your husband. He's coming to get me? In this storm? She asked her incredulity distracting her from the novelty of the fairest widows. She turned around and began marching towards me. You have to let me use the phone. I can't... crunch. Let him risk his life when I'm perfectly safe now. She didn't even hear it. That horrid, sickening crunching noise when she stepped on the dead spider. I immediately glanced back at the guard spider that had been watching her and saw it thrumming its thread with its rear legs, the vibrations traveling all the way up and throughout the colony. "'What's with the face?' "'Surely you won't get in that much trouble just for letting me use the phone,' she argued, oblivious to the danger we were both in now. "'I'm so sorry,' I said softly, feeling a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes. I dropped the coffees and ran back to the exit, slamming it shut and sealing her in the exhibit hall. Within seconds, she had caught up and was banging on the glass doors. What the hell are you doing? she demanded. I just pointed behind her, shaking my head helplessly. She turned around and saw that the thousands of spiders were now emerging from their nest and mass and converging in on her location. I presume you've seen a ball of spider babies at some point. Picture that, only the size of a basketball court. Oh my god, let me in, let me in, let me in! I wish I could have. I really do, but they had seen her trample a dead widow, and that is a crime which they cannot forgive. I heard her muffled screams through the glass doors as dozens, then hundreds of the spiders dropped down upon her, She swatted desperately as they buried themselves into her hair and beneath her clothes, covering every possible segment of her body. Her screams of terror were suddenly interjected with torturous cries of pain as hundreds of pairs of venomous fangs dug into her flesh nearly simultaneously. Those sharp cries turned to anguished wails and convulsed grimaces as the venom coursed through her veins, destroying muscle tissue and burning her up from the inside. She tried to run, but the surprisingly devious spiders had already strung a trip line behind her, falling her to the ground. She tried to force herself back up, but her muscles were already too badly damaged for that. Instead, all she could manage was to turn her head towards me, letting me see her final expression of shocked horror and betrayal before the spiders completely swarmed over her limp body. I watched as the entire colony worked together to cocoon her in silk, and then, with over a thousand tiny draglines, reeled her up into the main nest. I was too petrified to move for at least a solid minute, but when I was able to move again the first thing I did was drop to my knees and vomit. Bloody hell. The little blighters didn't waste any time on this one, did they? My boss callously asked as he stood atop the ladder and examined the cocooned carcass that was now safely inside the central nest. So, my boss. I've mentioned him a few times, and by now you may be wondering what sort of man keeps a menagerie of man-eating arachnids as his personal terrarium. I don't have all the answers, but this is what I do know. First, his name is Seneca Chamberlain. He's earned a reputation as our local eccentric millionaire. But if you've never lived in Harrowick County, then you likely haven't heard of him. He's exceptionally, though indeterminately, wealthy, as you can imagine. He also has a very Victorian fashion sense. He likes to dress in frock coats and cravats and top hats, velvets and silks, and always in deep reds and golds. A plutocrat with a pretentious and fashionably old-fashioned taste in clothing wouldn't normally be anything to get too worked up about, except for that my boss looks far younger than I know him to be, than anyone knows him to be. That too isn't all that unusual. Plenty of rich people look good for their age, but no amount of Botox or stem cells or plastic surgery can explain this. I'm sure of it. He looks no more than 40, and I know he's looked like that for decades, at least. The most unsettling thing is that the name Seneca Chamberlain goes back to the earliest surviving county records from nearly 200 years ago. My boss, of course, claims he's merely a descendant of the original Chamberlain, and that it was only poor record-keeping that failed to make that clear. But there are photos and portraits of his father and grandfather, and Look, if it wasn't for the fact I've seen him walking around in broad daylight, I'd swear he was a vampire. No, no they didn't, I answered him softly as I sat slumped against an information placard. My head tilted back toward the ceiling as I tried to process everything that had happened. She stepped on a spider almost as soon as I called you. Well, that would do it all right. He smirked, his eyes darting back and forth as he followed the countless widows going about their business. And you said she was married, correct? She was, I croaked, the stinging of tears starting to fill my eyes once again. To a man? He asked nonchalantly as he started climbing down the ladder. Yes, what does that matter? I asked irritably. It's just that it really tickles my fancy when this place becomes an actual widow-maker, he answered blithely, hopping to the ground. Still, widowers are a subtype of widow, now aren't they? Small victories then, Halden. Small victories. Come on now, stop moping. You did beautifully, and don't worry about any future problems with the law. That's all been taken care of. I turned my head to him then, wearing a poorly restrained glower of disgust and loathing. Sir, with all due respect, is this just a game to you? Leave the front gates open, let curious or desperate passerby wander on in, and then just let them do as they please until the widows snatch them up, just so that you can get your kicks and make a stupid pun? I demanded. Chamberlain just tossed his head back and chuckled dryly. No, no. Evans, no. I have far too much invested in this enterprise to risk bringing it to the authorities' attention over mere frivolities, he assured me. No, Halden. I'm afraid that the occasional incident is quite essential to our operations. Why don't you climb up yourself and take a better look? That should make things a bit clearer. My stomach churned at the prospects and looking at Carrie's silk-encrusted spider-covered corpse but I had let her die. If there was actually a good reason for that, I wanted to know. I forced myself to my feet and trudged up the ladder to see what Chamberlain was going on about. I peered down into the nest and saw exactly what I had expected to see, a silk-encrusted, spider-covered corpse. But then, I noticed that the spiders were behaving somewhat unusually. Instead of their usual, meticulous, coordinated activity, They were climbing all over each other, seemingly at random, their limbs intertwined, unfamiliar globules of material being ejected from their abdomens, in a mass orgy of... Fuck. It is an orgy. They're breeding, I realized. That's right. They only breed when they come across a windfall of food, such as this. Very responsible of them, Chamberlain commended. Sacrifices such as these are necessary to ensure the survival of the colony. But why human sacrifices? Why not a pig or a cow or stray dogs? Why do we have to feed them people? I demanded. He scrunched his face as he considered his response. Well, Halden, the widows are a result of co-evolution with and selective breeding by people, he explained. They evolved the gemstones to attract us, just as flowers evolved their blossoms to attract bees, and they offer us their dead in exchange for food and security. If someone or something steps on a dead spider, that's a threat to their arrangement. They kill them to ensure they don't destroy any more of their offspring, and use their body to fuel the next generation of fairest widows to offset the damage. That still doesn't I'm getting to that," he assured me. In addition to the gems and the silk, they produce a byproduct that's even more valuable. It's a sort of honeydew substance they use to nurse their young. It also happens to have unique biomedical properties that vary depending on the source of their meal. Feeding them cows and pigs and dogs would be all well and good if I was a veterinarian. But as it stands, my clientele are of an exclusively human variety and thus I need do made from exclusively human stock." I climbed down from the ladder, my outrage subsiding somewhat as what he said to me began to sink in. "'Unique biomedical properties?' I asked curiously, examining his ageless face as closely as I dared. "'Precisely,' he smirked knowingly, turning to take his leave. Once they finish the poor woman off, they'll package the dew in silk satchels and hang some of them out as an offering. I can trust you with their collection, yes? I hesitated briefly, trying to work up the courage to storm out on moral grounds and report him to the police. But I was already a willing accessory, and it wasn't like I didn't know this was going to happen when I took the job. And if I did try anything, there was no conceivable way that wouldn't end with me dead and Chamberlain getting off scot-free. Accepting the futility of resistance, I sighed heavily and nodded. Good man, speak with the entomologist first, he'll walk you through the procedure, Chamberlain said as he headed for the exit. And I realize this goes without saying, but drop or steal even a single satchel of dew, and being devoured by the widows will be the least of your worries." The glass door snapped shut as he left me alone with my thoughts, the corpse of the woman I'd helped murder, and the thousands of spiders turning into eggs and immortal honeydew. I suppose my earlier suppositions about my boss hadn't been completely off. He was a vampire, just in a roundabout sort of way. You can hear The Storms of Jupiter from Beneath the Pacific Ocean, written by Whatever manned 52 We arrived at the anomaly one week ago and settled into our respective stations. I arrived with three others, and we were all assigned tasks specific to our abilities. I was meant to monitor communications, whereas the others were charged with arrivals, Victor, life support, Cassandra, and power systems, Lucy. The venture was meant to last two weeks before we were to be replaced by the third expedition. The task of the first had been to simply prepare the site for our arrival. Fortunately, they did so without error, and we were able to arrive as scheduled. We had completed our cursory setup within the anomaly by the end of our first day on the site. The anomaly was pushed into the seafloor roughly 34,000 feet below the surface of the Pacific Ocean. Based on our initial readings, it constituted a perfect sphere that stretched a few hundred feet into the ground beneath us. The conditions within the anomaly mirrored those of the vacuum of outer space. Water could not penetrate the sphere. It acted almost like a bubble, keeping the water from gaining entry. The entire base was set up within the sphere, and we all wore gear as though we were astronauts on the International Space Station. What originally drew us to the location was sound vibrations picked up by a passing covert submarine. It detected highly unusual readings that left many unsure what could have caused the noise. Fearing some unknown weapon, action was quickly taken to determine the source of the mystery. After days of no progress, a breakthrough was realized when someone compared the sound to a recent satellite audio recording taken from a close flyby of the planet Jupiter. The sound coming from beneath the ocean was unmistakable. It was the sound of Jupiter's big red dot. From within the base, the sound is ever-present as it vibrates up from beneath us. The vibrations very clearly originate from the core of the anomaly and move outward in all directions. Our goal was to send Lucy and Victor down to the core to determine the source of the noise and provide both audio and video recording of what they saw and heard. Their path down had already been pre-drilled by a machine operated robotically by the first expedition, They would both be supplied with appropriate oxygen and life support like that of an eva on a nasa mission they would be bound to their respective stations by a thick cord that could be used to retrieve them in the event of an emergency during their expedition i would be monitoring sound from the anomaly as well as sound readings coming directly from the planet of jupiter provided by an orbiting satellite these sounds were out of sync as the sound coming from the anomaly was received immediately Whereas the recordings from Jupiter came significantly later due to the time it took for the signal to travel to Earth, I would still take the time to ensure that the later sounds arriving from Jupiter synchronized with the sounds recorded earlier from the anomaly. Lucy and Victor both prepared themselves in their own stations and emerged simultaneously. They each were equipped with a head-mounted camera and microphone. Their live feeds were sent to all of the stations within the anomaly as well as to our forward base floating above on the surface. They would proceed down to the center of the anomaly and take appropriate readings before returning. They slowly descended into the tunnel below, gliding through the zero gravity with ease. It would take them roughly five minutes to reach the center, at which point they would begin data collection. I began to notice as they drew closer that the sounds produced by the anomaly began to grow slightly, I was unable to determine if the increase was real or imagined. I could not shake the feeling of impending dread as I saw them approach the center and slow themselves to begin their investigation. Watching the video feed, it seemed as though their flashlights were swallowed entirely by a void at the center of the anomaly. They took out their instruments and took the appropriate readings. The first three minutes passed without incident. Suddenly, without warning, something emerged from the void and streaked across the video feed. We immediately lost communication with them. The cords connecting them to their stations pulled taut and dug into the ground around the tunnel through which they had entered. Power to the station was lost and we moved to emergency power. A light brighter than anything I had ever seen shot up from the tunnel and ejected beyond the top of the anomaly into the blackness of the ocean. I averted my gaze and then heard a crackle from my radio as the power suddenly returned. Lucy and Victor both communicated that they were alright, but could not remember what had happened after we had lost contact with them. Command instantly ordered them to return to their stations for debriefing, and they returned to the surface. When they came back up through the tunnel, I noticed that their cords had snapped and that they were no longer connected to their suits. Both Victor and Lucy returned to their stations, and I listened anxiously to their debrief. They shed a little light on what had occurred, and it seemed as though they knew less about the event than I did. Their responses were melancholy, and I was impressed by how much resolve they were able to show despite what they had gone through. After ending their debriefs, they visited Cassandra and life support to undergo sanitation to remove any dangerous bacteria they may have been exposed to. It was at this moment, roughly a half hour later, that I received the sound data from Jupiter that occurred at the moment of the event. The sound of the storm had not changed, but it was accompanied by a new sound that caused my skin to turn pale. Amongst the churning clouds of Jupiter, I heard the electronic signals that had been attached to Lucy and Victor's spacesuits. It seemed impossible as I had seen them emerge from the tunnel myself. It was not possible that their signals could be coming from a near-Jupiter orbit. As I checked and rechecked the signal, I overheard Cassandra over the radio. She said that she would need to complete a psychiatric evaluation on me as soon as possible to ensure the event had not impacted me in any major way. I thought this odd and then realized that her tone had changed from her usual chipper demeanor to one of bland melancholy. I did not respond to her message but instead saw something moving outside. I witnessed Lucy and Victor throwing a large bag into the tunnel that led to the center of the anomaly. As it fell, they moved and turned towards me and began to approach. I have lost communication with our forward operating base and I have locked the front door of my station. It has been three hours since they first ventured out, and a steady stream of Lucy's and Victor's have emerged from the tunnel. There are well over 50 of them now. They are standing outside and waiting. They know I cannot stay here forever. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories at gmail.com. You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash clancypastastore. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers.